And I welcome you to this edition of the Daily in Christ podcast. I'm Mark Van Oos. And it is a great joy for me to join you as we go to the Scripture with the help of the revealing work of the Holy Spirit so that we may see Jesus more clearly. Well, as I'm recording this particular podcast, we are in the cold of January and just a few weeks removed from Christmas. I have to confess that I love Christmas. <laughs> and uh, I guess my celebration of Christmas is so much more enriched, not by the Christmas lights, and I love Christmas lights, and not by presents and everything else that we do, but by knowing the real meaning of Christmas and what Christmas really points to. You know, a lot of Christians have the idea of Christmas wrong or, or they don't go deep enough. They say, well, it's the birthday of Jesus. Well, that's true, but that's a lot like saying that the Queen of, that uh, Queen Elizabeth is British. <laughs> There's something that goes far deeper than just the birth of Jesus. And thank God for that, uh, the birthday of Jesus. And the idea behind it all is the incarnation And so I'm titling this podcast, The Incarnation, The Greatest Thing That Ever Happened For You. And really, the the incarnation is what Christmas really is all about. And this message goes way beyond Christmas, as you will find out as we walk through and explore uh, the wonderful biblical idea, God's idea of the incarnation. Now, speaking of Christmas, one of my favorite Christmas carols is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I love it because it's so rich in biblical truth. Here's one of the stanzas. It says, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Let me uh, launch off that last word of that stanza, and that is the Hebrew word Emmanuel, which means God with us. And if you turn in your Bible over into the first book of the New Testament, I'm going to go ahead and grab my Bible, and uh, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1. So we're going to Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to read a few verses here, beginning in verse 21. And I'm reading from the New King James Version. And she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. I want that concept and that idea of Emmanuel, God with us, just like you're at a five-star restaurant and you're just enjoying the flavor of a extreme cuisine. Enjoy for just a moment the concept, the idea of God with us. There's three things I want to be sure to cover in this podcast about the incarnation. Point number one, what is the incarnation? That's a good, good place to start. Point number two, why the incarnation? And point number three, the incarnation 
and you. So let's start off and uh, let's have a look at what is the incarnation. Uh, can anybody answer that question? Okay, now don't all talk at once. <laughs> well, first of all, the word incarnation comes from two Latin words, in, which means in, and carnis, which means flesh. Put them together and it means in flesh. I found a really good definition in Easton's Bible Dictionary, and it's a, it's a rich yet concise definition of incarnation. Listen to this carefully, and then we'll sort of unwrap it, take it apart, and explore. It says that the incarnation is that act of grace whereby Christ took our human nature into union with his divine person, became man. Christ is both God and man. Human attributes and actions are predicated of him, and he of whom they are predicated is God. A divine person was united to a human nature. The union is hypostatical, i.e. is personal. The two natures are not mixed or confounded, and it is perpetual. Well, let's unwrap this great definition part by part. First of all, Easton says that the incarnation is an act of grace. And grace, dear listener, is God loving you, blessing you, and totally accepting you, not because you're so good, but because he is so good. And the incarnation is an act of God's grace. It's an act of God's love expressed to you. And the definition goes on. It says that Christ took our human nature, yet without sin, into union with his divine person and became man. That's a really important point. The Lord Jesus Christ is both God and man. He is fully God and fully man. Now, let me just stop for just a minute and ask you this question. When did the Son of God come into existence? When did the Son of God come into existence? Hmm. I think somebody just said, wait a minute, there's something wrong with that question. And if you said that, you're absolutely right, because the Son of God is God. God never came into existence. He has been pre-existent before time began. Question number two. Well, then when did the Son of Man, Jesus the Son of Man, come into existence? Think about it for a moment. Okay, I think someone said, at the conception. That's right. When the Holy Spirit came over Mary and conceived and brought forth the Son. So Jesus, according to his divinity, of course, is God eternal with no beginning and end. But Jesus, as human, as man, had a starting point. Now let's clarify something. Jesus is indeed fully God and fully man. 100% God, 100% man. It's not 50% God or 50% man like the Greek or Roman demigods, you know, their mythology has the gods, in quote, procreating with human beings, so their offspring is half God and half man. No, that's not the case at all with the Lord Jesus Christ. With him, it's undiluted divinity and undiluted humanity. 
The definition goes on and says that human attributes and actions are predicated of him, and he of whom they are predicated is God. You see, Jesus' humanity is based upon his divinity. God is always the first cause, right? What does it say at the very beginning of the Bible? In the beginning, God. And we know that he is that first cause of all creation, despite what the evolutionist says. God is God. And all that is good has come from God. And so it is true with Christ's humanity. That humanity is based upon his divinity. The definition goes on and says a divine person was united to a human nature. That is powerful. You have God, the divine person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, being united to a human nature. Easton's definition goes on to say that the union is hypostatical, is personal. So it isn't some impersonal force taking over a human body, you know. It is the person of the living God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is made human, clothed with flesh. It goes on to say, and I alluded to this earlier, that the two natures are not mixed or confounded. That's key. That's important. Finally, it says that it is perpetual. While Jesus, the Son of Man, had a starting point with the conception, his humanity will continue for all ages of eternity. Always. Fully Son of God. Fully Son of Man. It's important to understand that, uh, again, those two natures are not mixed. They're not confounded. There is the distinct nature of divinity in the Lord Jesus Christ and the distinct nature of humanity. Now, you may say, wow, how does that work? I don't know. He's God. (laughs) I've got a little puny brain. I don't get it. But there's a lot of things I don't get that God is about. It's one of those things that we stand in awe about. The, now, let's let's think about something here. The eternal Son of God, the divine, and the begotten, uh, begotten the Son of Man, human. The Nicene Creed says this, that Jesus is begotten and not made. He is uncreated. That humanity was not created. That humanity was begotten. Uh, And and that brings that very important clarification. Jesus, the Son of Man, was begotten of the Father. In John 1.14, we read that he is the only begotten of the Father. John 1.18 tells us that he is the only begotten Son. There are other scripture texts that talk about Jesus being begotten. John 3.16, remember, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, also, John 3.18, Acts 13.33, Hebrews 1.5, Hebrews 5.5, 5, and 1 John 4.9. So, what is the incarnation? Well, the incarnation is God, the Son, taking on humanity, becoming fully human, and remaining fully God. You know, 
think about that, whether it's Christmas time or any other time of the year, when we reflect on the greatness of God, when we reflect on this idea of the incarnation, and not even an idea, the reality of the incarnation, it is so awe-inspiring. Well, this leads me to the second question we want to take up today, and that is why the incarnation? I mean, we can see that the incarnation was indeed an amazing thing, but why in the world would God do this? You know, I have to confess, I have an itchy brain. I call it an itchy brain. (laughs) I'm one of those guys who's always said, well, why? Why? And I have often found that, that delving into that question of why really helps to uncover significant answers. And I hope as we look at why the incarnation right now, we can uh, dig deeper and learn deeper and really get to, to see God the Father's heart in doing this, in bringing us God the Son as Son of Man. So why did Jesus have to be made flesh, made human? Well, turn in your Bible, and uh, we're going to go to the book of Romans, and let's go to Romans chapter 5, and we're going to begin reading in verse 12. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. And it reads, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Now, I just want to stop right here and just say that uh, this particular passage is referring to Adam, the first man. Let me read 13 again. For until the the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, Much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many uh, offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord." Well, we could spend a long time in this text, and that's not really our focus today, but I do want to point out a few very important factors of this passage in light of the Incarnation. And taking up that question, why did Jesus have to be made flesh, 
made human? I mean, that's really at the core of my question. Why in the world did this have to happen? Well, as we see here in Romans chapter 5, there are distinctly two races of human beings that are portrayed. As a matter of fact, do you know that in all the world, there are only two races of human beings? Really, when it comes right down to it, only two. There are those who are in Adam, first Adam, and all those born of him. And the second race are those who are in Christ, the last Adam, and born again of him. Now, let's consider that first race that I mentioned. And by the way, every human being is initially born into the, the, I almost said losing race, but that's true. It is losing race of Adam and all that are born of him. And of those, those in Adam and born of Adam, death reigns, verses 14 and 17 in that passage says. Sin reigns, verse 21. There's condemnation, verse 16 and verse 18. And verse 19 says that many were made sinners. That's pretty bad. That's the uh, condition of the fallen human race and those who are in Adam. But for those who receive the gift of new life in Jesus Christ and they're born again, I mentioned very lightly and briefly uh, John 3.16 a few minutes ago, but let's look at that right now. It says, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him might not perish but have everlasting life. Earlier in that chapter, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus says that a man must be born again. So for those who are born again, it's a miracle of grace. They are no longer in first Adam. They are in last Adam. And uh, in just a few minutes in Romans chapter 6, we'll find out how that happened very briefly. But in Christ, the last Adam and those born again of him, here are the factors of him and those in him. They have life rather than death. They reign in life, verse 17. Grace reigns through righteousness, verse 21. They have received the free gift of righteousness, verse 17. They have an abundance of grace, verse 17 again. And they are made righteous. They are no longer sinners, but they are saints, verse 19. So here we see in Romans chapter 5, we see two men. There is first Adam and there is last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Both of these Adams are what could be called progenitors. They are those who bring forth a race. And all that is true of each of their descendants goes all the way back to the first one. Now, some of us may say, well, gee, that seems awfully unfair. I mean, Adam fell, he rebelled against God, and why is his sin reckoned on to me? Well, all of us are bound to our ancestors. For instance, if your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather 300 years ago was hiking through the woods, made a wrong turn, and fell off a cliff to his death, what would that do to you? You wouldn't be here. You and I are inextricably bound to our predecessors. However, 
When we've been born again, we have been born into a new life. We have actually died. Now, before I get into that concept, I just want to wrap up here in Romans chapter 5. One of the reasons why they're, they're for the incarnation is that there needed to be another man. There needed to be another Adam. There needed to be another race of human beings. And that's one of the big reasons for the incarnation. Okay, let's go to Romans chapter 6, just a little further in your Bible. And let's pick it up in verse 4. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. Therefore, we were buried with him, Christ, through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection." Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. And let me just add verse 7. Now, he who has died has been freed from sin. Verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Romans 6 brings in a theme known as union with Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says this, Of him, of God, are you in Christ. God the Father, through the agency of the Holy Spirit, has baptized us into Christ. And in union with him, what has happened to him has now happened to us. Jesus 2,000 years ago died, and that was not, by the way, the Son of God who died. It was the Son of Man. His humanity died. Divinity can't die. His humanity died at the cross, but according to what we have here in Romans chapter 6 and a few other places in the New Testament, Jesus didn't die alone. The believer is united with Christ in that death. And just as Jesus' death on the cross at Calvary was real, you died, believer, in him. The purpose of Jesus' death was more than dying for your sins. He had to die for sinners. And through him, united with him, you have died. Colossians chapter 3 brings this out, verse 3. It says, for you died past tense, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. That's Colossians chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Galatians 2.20 says this, I am crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I live in the In the body, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, God's way of dealing with sinners, he is not by reforming them, not by changing their behavior, not by re-educating them, not by whatever, you know, that we try to do to change people. God's dealing and only solution to sinners is 
death. God's only way of correcting the problem is killing sinners. And those sinners will either be killed eternally in hell or killed united with Christ at the cross in his death. That's so significant, my dear friend. That's why it is blatantly wrong to go around saying that Christians are sinners. That's horrifically unbiblical. You won't find that anywhere. And I've written an article about that, The Myth of the Christian Sinner, on my website, dailyinchrist.org. You see, when you died with Christ, the old sinner, you died with him. That's why Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live. But there's a union, another union aspect that happens just as surely as Jesus rose three days later, we rose together with him to new life. And so our progenitor, our predecessor, is no longer first Adam, the sinner, the failure, the loser. We are now children. We are descendants of another Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, that's powerful. Let that soak in and keep tuned to the Daily in Christ podcast because As we go on, more and more we'll get into these uh, realities. I wish I had more time to stay on this. I can't. I need to keep moving. So we're talking about the incarnation. So a very powerful reason we see in Romans chapter 5 and chapter 6 is union with Christ, union in his death to take us out of that failing race of humans and first Adam into a brand new race as new creations in last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 2. And we're going to take up a few verses in Hebrews chapter 2. Again, we are considering the question, why the incarnation? Hebrews chapter 2, and uh, I'm going to read in verse 9, which says this, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. This launches out of what I just said in Romans chapter 6. You see, when it says that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels, that speaks to his, of course, his humanity. And the reason why he was made a little lower than angels, the reason why he was made human, the reason why he suffered death and then therefore crowned with glory and honor was so that this man, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Wow. That's a powerful reason for the incarnation. Uh, Go down to verse 14. Consider this, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, and through death, I'm sorry, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. That's Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 and 15. You see, he had to be incarnated. He had to be brought in flesh because he had to have flesh and blood like us. If he didn't, then he couldn't have destroyed him, 
the devil who had the power of death and release us. So a very powerful reason for the incarnation was in sharing flesh and blood with us. We are released from the devil's domain. As Peter says, we have been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the glory of his, the son of his love. Oh, that's great. Oh, another reason for the incarnation. You see why it's so good to dig into this and study this is that Jesus had to be made a perfect high priest. He had to be human to be that perfect high priest. In Hebrews chapter 5, and by the way, the book of Hebrews gets into so many reasons for the incarnation, but in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 1, we read this, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Do you see that? The, there needed to be a man to be the high priest. God, design, God the Father designated Jesus as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He had to be a man in order to be the priest. And... He had to be yet without sin. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, it talks about this great high priest, and it says this, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I'm going to get into this a little bit later as I take up the third point, you know, what does the incarnation have to do with us? But let me just say this. This one who was made flesh and blood like us, a man, was designated by God as high priest, and this one has accomplished it. He has done it all. He was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, I want you to consider something. None of us have been blasted with all the temptations that uh, the devil can come up with. I am not tempted to smoke cigarettes, for instance, but I know a lot of people who are. Um, I'm not tempted to drink alcohol, but I know a lot of people who are. I've got my hang-ups and problems. How about you? <laughs> but you see, Jesus was barraged by the devil with every single temptation imaginable, yet without sin. Another reason for the incarnation is the blood. There had to be blood that was shed. If you go a few chapters over to Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, and uh, let's begin with verse 11. Thinking about the blood, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Continuing on. 
For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Just a couple of things to point out. Jesus, verse 12, says, through this and his blood obtained eternal redemption. This is redemption blood. And when the Bible talks about redemption, it is a purchase. And there's two aspects to this redemption. There is a purchase from or out of, like a rescue, and there's a purchase into. The purchase out of, the ransom, when you think of someone being kidnapped and the kidnappers are demanding a ransom, there is there has to be a payment of the ransom in order to free the kidnapped victim. Jesus, with his blood, ransomed you and I from the curse of sin, from the curse of death, from the domain of darkness, from the domain of the devil, from curses, everything that was bad and wrong. He purchased us completely out of that, and with his redemption blood, we belong to God. God has purchased us as his own. As it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. None other, dear friend, than the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it. That blood cleanses and sanctifies. Man, that's powerful. And the blood institutes a new covenant. It is the covenant of grace. Jesus died to institute a new covenant. And that new covenant is not about how good you are or how well you behave as the covenant of law did. The covenant of law basically said, do and live. It said, if you do this, then you shall live. If you uh, obey, so forth. All the blessings were conditional on you. But with the new covenant, of course, the old covenant was never meant to bring you into blessings because it says in, in Deuteronomy 27 and 28 that if you break even one of the least of the commandments, you are guilty of all and you deserve not blessings from God, but curses. So there needed to be a new and infinitely better covenant. That new and infinitely better covenant is the one that doesn't have you in the middle, like the covenant of law, but it has Jesus in the middle. The man in focus isn't you. The man in focus is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're the beneficiary of all the good things of God because of that. The new covenant is the covenant of grace. And remember what I said, grace is God loving you, fully, totally accepting you, and totally blessing you, not because you are so good, but because he is so good. Mm, that's good. That is good. That is powerful. That is an anchor that can hold through any storm, let me tell you. I got to move on. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. And by the way, I have an extended series on the book of Hebrews. It's called uh, 
Hebrews, the glory of the new covenant. And if you haven't heard it, I encourage you to to listen to that. In Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 5, and by the way, this comes in in contrast to the old covenant of law when there was sacrifices of bulls and goats and it wasn't perfect. There wasn't a perfect sacrifice. And therefore, with that imperfect sacrifice of the law covenant, it said in verse uh, 1, they can never with these same sacrifices, which they continually offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. But listen to this, verse 5. Here's Jesus, the man. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the book of the and the volume of the book, it is written of me, to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. That's in reference, the first is the covenant of law, the second and is taken away, The second is the grace covenant, the new covenant. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. And listen to this, verse 10, by that will. Whose will? Your will? Nah. His will. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Whew. Verse 5, Jesus said, a body you have prepared for me. If he didn't, if he was not incarnated, there wouldn't have been a body that he could have offered, but there was. In verse seven, Jesus says, as man, I have come to do your will, O God. Think about the full dimensions of this. The Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God and the son of man, The Lord Jesus is the perfect son with perfect obedience to his father, living a perfect life, a perfect high priest with perfect suffering and perfect blood, a perfect lamb of God, a perfect sacrifice with a perfect death and a perfect resurrection and a perfect ascension and a perfect reign from the throne of God. May I ask you a question? Can you improve perfect He did it all perfectly. And because of that, we are complete. Jesus shared in our humanity so that we would be partakers of the divine nature. That's what it says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. We're going to continue this discussion on the Incarnation in our next episode of the Daily in Christ podcast, but I want you to think of something. The Lord gave me this just this past week as I was pondering the glory of the Incarnation, and that is this. Listen carefully. The full benefits of Christ's divinity become mine through the agency of Christ's full humanity. Let me say that again. The full benefits of Christ's divinity, his Godhood, 
become mine through the agency of his full humanity. This doesn't mean that I turn into God, but this means that everything that God the Father has is now available to me because of the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And listening, friend, this changes absolutely everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your amazing heart of love, that you would love us this much, that you would give your only begotten Son with flesh and blood, fully God and fully man, Lord, so that we would experience all of your loving embrace, all of your love and your blessing and your full acceptance of us, no condemnation. Lord, as we allow this word to settle into our spirit, I pray that you, Father, by the Holy Spirit, would continue just to water this word to bring deeper understanding and revelation and clarity of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his mighty name we pray. Amen.